If you like listening to Warriors in Their Own Words, check out our other show, the Medal of Honor podcast. The link is in the show description. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we'll hear from Staff Sergeant Brian Keith. Keith was among the first Marines deployed to fight in the Gulf War. He served as a forward observer. Well, I was going to college, uh, you know, doing the whole football gig, and uh, I decided that, uh, you know, I didn't have the level of commitment or discipline, frankly, to, uh, you know, to put in the time for the academics. So I decided that I needed a big change, and uh, I definitely got it when I, when I joined the Marines. You know, frankly, I, I didn't know a lot about artillery or anything like that. I mean, of course, I knew, you know, big guns. Um, but, you know, I didn't know anything about forward observation. You know, when I went to the, the School of Infantry, because I signed up as an infantryman, they had selected me to be a, uh, a mortarman originally. And so I went through mortar school and, you know, learned how to be a, learned how to be a mortarman. And, uh, and then shortly thereafter, they asked me if I wanted to be a forward observer. It was interesting. Um, you know, I was in pretty good shape. I was kind of a, a, a tall, thin guy, um, you know, had quite a bit of endurance. And uh, one of the things that they said about forward observation is, is that you're going to be carrying not only all the equipment that everyone else carries, but plus a radio and batteries and, you know, cryptological gear and all that other kind of stuff. Uh, so they have to be in, you know, excellent condition, excellent shape and all that. So I thought, well, you know, that sounds pretty challenging as well. Um, I guess as far as the uh, the description that they gave me was, uh, you know, your responsibility is to support and protect, and I guess in a, in, in a sense, defend the units that you're that you're out supporting. Um, it was, uh, you know, it, it was a it was a pretty incredible responsibility. You know, when you think that you know, as a young lance corporal, I was responsible for you know taking care of all these other people indirectly, so to speak. Someone had told me at some point that uh, the life expectancy of a forward observer on the battlefield was about 30 seconds. <laughs> so I, I didn't really think one way or the other, I guess. It just, you know, to me, it seemed very interesting. It was, uh, you know, and it, frankly, it beat carrying a mortar around. <laughs> yeah, the majority of the time uh, when I went out, I was with, um, you know, I was, like I said, with an infantry unit, but generally, you know, out front. Um, you know, in, in the, uh, in the Gulf, I was with a forward element, uh, the tanks, and, uh, we also had a machine gun element, a machine gun platoon, and then our universal spot team, which consisted of myself, who was a forward observer for both artillery and mortars, and also a forward air controller. And, uh, we did have a naval gunfire, uh, liaison with us as well, and then plus a driver slash communicator. And, and as I said, mortars, primarily when I, when I first got into it, I, I just did mortars, uh, 81 millimeter mortars. Uh, every uh, Marine infantry battalion has an 81 millimeter mortar platoon 
so I was I was the Ford Observer with a particular company. For instance, we had Ford Observers that went out to all the infantry companies uh, to provide, you know, either direct or or general support of uh, of whatever unit was that was out there. So, yeah, so I'd go out there and and literally, you know, locate, uh, you know, locate the enemy, uh, you know, reference the map, and that was one of the things that that they had mentioned to me too, you know, in describing what Ford Observation was all about is that you had to be an, an incredibly good uh, land navigator. You had to be able to identify and and do terrain association. Uh, because you not only need to know where you are and where friendly troops are, but you also need to know where the enemy is and need to be able to direct that fire accurately because it doesn't take much, uh, you know, with a, with a artillery piece that's firing 18 miles away, it doesn't take much in error to have it land in the wrong place. So you have to be real careful about, about what you do. Frankly, it could land on friendly troops, which, you know, I, I used to have, I remember, um, you know, even prior to the Gulf or anything like that, you know, I used to have dreams about calling in for fire. My, my former wife actually had, uh, had said that I would call for fire in my sleep and uh, had dreams about, you know, bombing my own people. And so I was just deathly afraid of that. You know, so I, I did everything I could to prepare myself to, frankly, be the best Ford observer I could be. I, I studied all the time. I, you know, I practiced my land navigation. You know, I, I stayed in excellent condition. You know, I, I did everything that I could possibly do to make sure that when the time came, I was, I was ready. We were in Panama at the time, and, uh, you know, we got the word, hey, uh, we're going back to the States a little bit early, but they didn't tell us why. And so when we got back to the uh, the parade deck at Camp Pendleton, they told us, uh, you know, you have 10 hours from now, you know, be back here and uh, don't unpack any of your gear. So we knew we were going somewhere. We just weren't certain of it, but we had a pretty good indication that it would probably be to the Middle East. And uh, we got back after our, our 10 hours of liberty and, uh, you know, boarded buses and, and went to 29 Palms, California and did about a week's worth of you know, a week's worth of training, uh, getting acclimatized, I guess, to some extent, and, uh, you know, doing a lot of shooting, a lot of live fire exercises and things like that to make sure that all of our equipment and our weapons and, and whatnot were working properly. And uh, then we boarded, uh, and we boarded planes and took off. <laughs> you know, I, I likened it to, you know, because we had, you know, thankfully had a lot of, uh, a number of years of peace, if you will, and um, and it was it's, it was kind of like practicing for the football game you never got to play. And you know, while I don't think anyone you know hopes for war or anything like that, I think it's you know inherent in all of us, at least we that were in the military, that you know we wanted it was a test. It was to see how you did. Can I do this? You know, and you never really know until the time comes. And one of the times that I remember the most, right before we went. Is when we were in the uh, when we were in the hangar bay waiting to get on the plane, and uh, a couple of our NCOs came around and uh, with crates of ammunition and started handing out ammunition, and we started filling magazines before we got on the plane. That kind of started to lead us to believe, okay, this is for real. <laughs> you know, this is a this is a real deal. And frankly, we didn't know what the what the situation on the ground was. All we knew is that we were given ammunition. So, you know, I thought, you know, as soon as we get off the plane, we might be in a gunfight. 
so, you know, of course, we had our equipment as best we could uh, ready to go. But when we stepped off, you know, of course, the, the airport was secure, thankfully. Uh, it was about 135 degrees on the tarmac when we stepped off. And we were in helmets and flak jackets. And, you know, the plane was air-conditioned. You know, so for basically about 24 hours, we'd been in an air-conditioned environment. And then all of a sudden, you step out into this blast furnace. And uh, it, was, it was the most amazing heat. I mean, just wilting heat that, you know, that one would ever feel. And uh, a, a friend of mine, uh, Todd Hansen, he, uh, he was from, I don't know, I think he was from Queens. He said, Keith, he said, man, he said, I can't even do six days here, let alone six weeks. Because that's what they had said, you know, we'll be here for about six weeks. And, uh, you know, he said, I'll go, you know, I'll go crazy. I'm like, well, where are you going to go? <laughs> you, know, I said, you know, not like you can run away. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty incredible when we first got there. I mean, just never felt anything like it ever. And like I said, we'd just come from Panama. And we'd just come from, you know, 29 Palms, the American desert. So, you know, I thought, ah, oh, no problem. But just, just completely different, miserable. We didn't, uh, we didn't get our first mission until the very, you know, the very first day of the war, which I think was, was it 22nd of February? I think it was 22nd of February. Um, you know, we had moved up incrementally, you know, really when we got there. We arrived uh, August 12th, uh, which was 10 days after um, the invasion. And so we moved up incrementally as, uh, you know, I guess as time progressed and, you know, negotiations faltered and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, they continued to move us closer and closer to the, to the border. And uh, I think it was January 17th. Is when the uh, is when the air campaign began, and I remember I was laying in my, I was I was laying in my hole, <laughs> you know, and I and I had a Walkman, and I could listen to the BBC, and um, you know, just had announced, you know, the air war has begun, and uh, you know, whoops and cries, and you know, people uh, kind of celebrating, I guess, finally getting started, uh, because you know we'd been there at that point almost uh, I don't know six and a half seven months training in the desert and, uh, you know, and sitting around and, and there's not a lot to do in the desert, if you can imagine that. Um, <laughs> it, it was a little unsettling, I guess, when we got our vehicle prepared and everything ready to go. You know, I realized we had seven antennas on our vehicle, you know, prime target, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, it's like a pink neon sign saying, shoot us, <laughs> you know, we're, uh, you know, we have a lot of radios, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know, going take a shot at us, you know, what do you think? You know, even even my time, even my time as a sniper, um, we trained all of our people to be able to utilize supporting arms, artillery, mortars, and you know, close air support, uh, because you know that it's such a valuable asset, and you can really you can change the tide of a battle. One person can change the tide of of a battle uh, with with a well placed fire mission or with a, you know a, an accurate. Um, airstrike or whatever. Uh, so being a forward observer has a, a great deal of impact on what, what can occur on the battlefield because you're really shaping the battlefield for the infantry and for the ground troops and everything, uh, you know, prepping, you know, a particular position prior to them going in and, and uh, clearing trenches and bunkers and things like that. So, you know, you, you provide them a valuable asset and some valuable support. Um, you know, so you're very, it's a very proactive role that you take, uh, you know, with, uh, being a forward observer. So, you know, uh, so actually we got, yeah, it was the 22nd, I think it was the 22nd of February. 
it was his first day of the ground campaign. Uh, we had finally moved up the the night, or I, I guess it was the day before, into uh, I guess kind of our you know our final uh, final position, you know, and and this is where things even became more real uh, because that's when we actually you know took the anti tank rockets out of the cases and you know and uh, and the hand grenades and all that kind of stuff and and so you know we knew there was really you know we're going in for sure this time. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no coming back, you know, and then about, I think it was like 4.30 in the mornings when we actually started the first push, they dug a hole through the Saudi sand berm. And, uh, you know, I don't know, it's just this enormous berm, probably 20 feet high and I don't know, 50 feet thick. And, uh, so they, you know, so they dug big holes through this and that's what separated Kuwait from Saudi Arabia, you know, through the gap we went. And, uh, we were probably... We were probably 50 yards on the other side of the berm when I had my first near-death experience. <laughs> a tank, you know, it was dark, and the tanks were all buttoned up because we had, you know, intelligence and, and whatnot had said, you know, they're Iraqis, you know, they're there, and they might be there right away, so, you know, everybody be prepared. Well, we were driving straight, and a tank was not. It was driving at an angle, and literally, we stopped, and the tank stopped almost at the same time within six inches of us, you know? Because, <laughs> you know, the tank probably wouldn't have noticed a whole lot. It would have just, you know, kept on rolling. But uh, so, you know, that was, it's kind of, a, kind of an odd start to the day. You know? <laughs> we had a general direction that we would be heading. We had uh, essentially a corridor that we would be uh, moving up through. We had um, task force uh, Papa Bear to our right, or which would have been our east. And then um, then we had this, some of the 2nd Marine Division, I think it was 1st Battalion, 8th Marines on our left, on our left flank, as we moved up through. So we had our lane of responsibility, if you will, you know, moving right up the center, headed for Kuwait City. Actually, we, we never had the opportunity. We were moving so quickly, and, and the battle progressed so fast that there really was no time to set up any kind of forward observation post. So we were just, we were doing it on the move, uh, you know, in our, in our vehicle. Um, like I said, we had a Humvee with, you know, with four guys. So it was a, it was a pretty busy vehicle. It actually worked well. Um, what, uh, you know, what I did is, is kept track of, of our position. You know, we, and as I told you before, we didn't have a GPS. Uh, we didn't have a global positioning system. Uh, so I had to keep track via, you know, my compass and an odometer and, you know, keeping track of a couple of vehicles I knew that did have GPSs and, and orienting myself from them. But, you know, I guess, you know, uh, necessity is a mother of invention. Uh, you know, so you just basically did dead reckoning. You know, once we would have an opportunity to stop, I would, you know, check my coordinates again, make sure I knew where I was at. And then, you know, once we would begin to move again, you know, obviously on that direction and that distance, you know, I knew that I was headed on that line and I knew where I was at. Um, so that worked out, uh, frankly, pretty well. The first mission was, uh, it was at the first obstacle belt. And, uh, you know, we had been receiving some sporadic fire and stuff like that. And, and we pulled up there and, and let, them, let them have it, I guess. <laughs> let it loose. It was a, uh, it was an infantry, uh, I don't know, I guess a platoon position. Uh, we'd been receiving some fire from, 
uh, from that area. And so it just called for high explosive, uh, high explosive ammunition. You know, a lot of smoke and fire and sand and, you know, stuff getting kicked up all over the place. It was, uh, it was pretty amazing. But, you know, again, we weren't sticking around for very long. It was, you know, it was shoot, move and communicate primarily was, I guess, the order of the day. You know, we didn't have a lot of time to, you know, I guess to look around or, or do anything like that. You know, we had our mission and, and we were, uh, were making progress pretty quickly. It was, it was quite a moment, I guess. Um, the, uh, and, and really, you know, kind of realizing for the first time that somebody's shooting back at you uh, was, was uh, you know, kind of brought you, to, uh, brought you to reality pretty quickly. You know, and I guess, and one thing that, I, one thing that I'd always been told is that, you will fight the way you practice, the way you train. And it was absolutely true because there wasn't any apprehension. Uh, you know, certainly there was a lot of adrenaline, you know, going on and, and probably some fear as well. Um, but, you know, I got on the radio and, and just did it, you know, and there wasn't a lot of thought process to it. I just knew what had to be done and I knew how to do it and I did it. So it was, it was, uh, it was pretty wild. You can hear the artillery shells, but they don't whistle uh, like you see on the movies. You can't really describe what it, it almost sounds like wind, you know, going over top of your, uh, over top of you or over top of your positions or whatever. And uh, uh, they, uh, they make a hell of a bang when they hit. Because the, the 155s, they fire a 125-pound projectile. And that's the high-explosive round. And they have a, a ton of, an assortment of, uh, of ammunition and stuff that they utilize, but... Uh, that high explosive was, you know, was pretty standard ammunition. It has an effective casualty radius of 55 meters. So anything within a 55 meter uh, range is, uh, is done. And they, they shred everything. And I guess I should have brought it with me. Um, I had some, um, some shrapnel actually that I'd picked up and the shrapnel is probably 10 inches long and probably an inch and a half wide and about as sharp as a knife on the edges. Uh, you know, you could probably cut yourself with it. You know, so imagine that thing flying around at, uh, you know, about the speed of sound, you know, red hot, and uh, just cuts through, cuts through stuff like, like, uh, like a knife through uh, warm butter. I guess one of the things that, uh, you know, that I still to this day remember very vividly is all the oil and the smell that was, uh, you know, that just permeated everything, you know, throughout the entire, throughout the entire battle and throughout the entire conflict. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a smell associated when, you know, human flesh is burnt. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a smell that you can't, you can't describe, uh, but it's, it's not a good smell. It was really wild to think when I was in when I was in the Gulf. I mean, I was a corporal at that time, and I had um, I don't know an entire regiment of artillery in direct support of us and the breach that we were doing. And I thought, I thought, wow, that's a lot of firepower for you know one little guy like me to have uh, at my disposal. And uh, so, yeah, it, it's it's a pretty it's it's. It's pretty wild to think about, you know, how much power you can actually wield with a radio. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. 
You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily. Hello, this is Gary Chachot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th-century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th-century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. You know, I looked around, I did my battle damage assessment. I thought, okay, you know, I got pretty good impact on target. Uh, All right, now time to move on, something else. So there wasn't a lot of time to ponder. It was, okay, now what's the next threat? What's the next thing? Uh, you know, trying to, you know, all the time, uh, I guess, be cognizant of what was going on. Situational awareness, I guess, probably the best way to describe it. You know, there were a lot of craters. Um, and actually, their positions were not very well made, not very well dug. Um, they weren't uh, reinforced positions at all. It was just sand. I mean, it was just basically, you know... Uh, I don't know, I guess trenches dug in the, in the sand, and, and they'd been pounded on so long, I think, uh, they'd stopped making improvements to their positions. So in some places, you know, of course, the sand had, had filled it in. So, you know, there were uh, not, it didn't offer a lot of protection uh, for those people. You know, one of the interesting things is, you know, when we would pull up to a position like that uh, and, you know, start the barrage, it didn't take for very long for those people to give up. Uh, there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of fight. I don't think left in them in a lot of cases. I mean, you know, on 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 a number of occasions, you know, of course they uh, they came after us pretty hard. But you know, the the most amazing thing I saw over there really was when we were driving across the desert and literally as far as the eye could see from horizon to horizon was nothing but armored vehicles, tanks, you know, and infantry vehicles. I mean, literally as far as the eye could see. And, you know, of course, we had, uh, you know, fixed-wing aircraft that were buzzing around all the time. We had a lot of rotary, rotary-wing aircraft, Cobra helicopters, and, and so forth, uh, that were, you know, providing us with support. As a matter of fact, uh, at one point, we, we had just stopped, and, um, and, and I was, I don't know, I was taking a look at some targets, I think, and uh, a Cobra fired a Hellfire missile right over the top of our vehicle. You know, so I hear this big bam, and, you know, and your initial reaction is to get on the ground, you know, but I was in a vehicle, so there was nothing I could do, um, you know, and I, and I had no idea what it was. I thought, you know, surely, a, a, you know, a tank was shooting at us or something like that, but it was actually, it was actually, a, you know, a Cobra helicopter that fired right over the top of us, but that'll send pins and needles up your spine, you know. 
there were actually tanks that were that were dug in, and our tankers did a, a really good job of, of of taking care of those threats, I guess, if you will. I, I remember there were some tanks that had their turrets completely blown off, uh, you know, and were obviously sitting there burning. And yeah, there were, uh, you know, there were, I don't know, 15, 20 bodies laying about. It was, uh, it was that, that's, that brings you pretty close to reality pretty quickly. Um, you know, the, uh, you know, I guess the level of destruction that, uh, that can be brought to bear, you know, with, with not really a, a great deal of effort at all. You know, just with a, you know, basically getting on the radio and, and making a call. When we would pull up to a position, we'd engage targets, uh, you know, for instance, um, you know, troops or, or tanks or vehicles or whatever the case might have been at the time. It didn't take very long for them to surrender and in droves. And, and sometimes we, you know, would, would approach positions and we didn't even have to fire, a, you know, a single bullet. Um, because, uh, you know, they would come out in droves, they would get out and, and all, anything that they could find that was white, they would, they had in their hands and were showing very readily, of course, to everyone, you know, that, Hey, I'm, I'm giving up. No, you know, don't shoot me. Um, but, uh, I mean, there was just, and there were just too many of them. There were too many to even handle. So, you know, it got to the point where we finally just started, you know, pointing to the South. You know, and uh, and let them go. <laughs> I mean, we had to let the rear units, the 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 units that were following us up, you know, kind of coordinate the the prisoner effort. I guess. You know, I think they were. I think they were. Not only were they were they beaten militarily, but I think they were beaten mentally. And uh, you know, once someone's lost their will to fight, you know, they're they're not they're not going to hang out and get shot. Well, it was four days total. Um, so it was, I mean, it was really a pretty short operation, uh, you know, I guess, comparatively speaking. Um, you know, I think we, uh, the first night we stopped and dug in. And actually, I think it was, if I remember right, it was three, it was like three o'clock in the afternoon and it was pitch black. I mean, it was so dark, I couldn't see with my night vision goggles on because of all of the smoke from all of the oil fires and everything that had been detonated and, and were burning. And it was just, I mean, it was pitch black. And that gives you kind of an odd feeling when you know that there are enemy tanks out there running around, enemy units out there running around, uh, and you can't see. You know, that, uh, that's a little unsettling. You know, so the first thing I did when we, uh, when we stopped and, and set up position was dig a fighting hole. <laughs> you know, wanted to make sure that I was prepared. Yeah, I was out with the um, the tank unit. We had a, a tank company that was assigned to us, and then also we had a, a machine gun platoon. And then I was up, so I was up there in the midst of all of these guys, which was kind of funny because uh, you know here are these tanks, you know they're big, heavy, protected vehicles, you know, and, uh, and you know lots of firepower and everything. And and then you've got these uh, machine gun vehicles, which are you know Kevlar have Kevlar. I guess Kevlar outside Kevlar shell, and we were in a we were in a Humvee that was a softback. It was canvas, you know, on the sides. <laughs> so, you know, there we are up there doing our job, you know, where everybody else is pretty well protected, uh, you know, with with canvas doors on the, you know on the vehicle. So, I remember distinctly coming into Kuwait City. Uh, it was at night, and um, 
we'd received some sporadic fire, but, you know, again, at, at, at night, it's difficult to be able to tell exactly where everybody is as, as far as a unit, as units are concerned. So, you know, I was, I was very careful about, you know, calling in for fire or anything like that. And I remember at one point um, when we came up to the, to the interstate right on the edge of Kuwait City, um, one of the tanks, uh, you know, opened up with, um, with a 50 caliber machine gun, you know, and the red tracers. And then, you know, some of the machine gun unit, uh, some of the machine gun platoon had opened up as well. And, and I remember watching this whole exchange happen. And, and, you know, thinking to myself, wow, you know, the tracers are really pretty. You know, I, I remember thinking that to myself, wow, that's, you know, it's pretty, but, you know, you understood that that, you know, there, you know, there's combat going on, not, you know, 15, 20 yards from where you're, where you're located at. It's, it's, it's pretty incredible stuff. We were on the, uh, the west flank of the battalion, and they had told us that a, that a, uh, a counterattack was imminent. That uh, there was a I don't know an armored company or battalion or something like that that was that was uh, you know forming a counterattack, and so I was placed out on the flank uh, with with our people, uh, you know, with everybody else in our vehicle, and you know, and in the distance, probably you know five miles away, we could see a great deal of uh, of you know like a cloud of sand, you know. So you know, what's going through my mind is you know here they come. You know, here they come, here comes a battalion of tanks. And, you know, and the adrenaline starts, you know, pumping real hard and everything like that. And uh, so what we did is we punched out even further towards, you know, in the direction of, of where the, or the origin, I guess, of the, the, the cloud. And uh, so we could get a better point of observation. And what it ended up being as, you know, as I got my binoculars out and started, you know, started observing and started watching, what it ended up being was a unit, an American unit coming back, coming back our way to join back up with the main body. And so, you know, <laughs> you know, wow, talk about relief, <laughs> you know, talk about relief. Well, the first thing that you do is you determine the target's location. You, you absolutely have to do that. I mean, obviously, you identify what the target is. Obviously, identify that it's that it is foe, and uh, you know you identify the the location of the target, and then you have to you have to think about based on what the target is. Uh, think about what sort of ammunition you need to use in order to engage that particular target. For instance, high explosive ammunition with a with the uh, with a quick fuse. You know, you would use for troops in the open. Um, you know, a time delayed fuse is something that you would use on troops, you know, that who were dug in. Um, you know, you have aerial burst rounds and all that kind of stuff. So you have to, you know, you have to look and see what it is, determine, you know, the, I guess the best remedy, I guess I'll call it, if you will. And, uh, and then you, then you put all that together. And I used to, I wrote everything down because I didn't want to, I made sure that I didn't make a mistake. You know, that was very, it was very important to me. And, and, uh, you know, so I wrote down, you know, obviously the target location, you know, what I saw and, and also these, you know, everything that I send in is essentially a, what we used to call a salute report, uh, which is a, which is a, uh, a report about the enemy size, activity, location, unit, time, and equipment. So when you send in a target description, when you're calling your fire mission, essentially you're, you're giving the headquarters intelligence as to what's out there and, and the location, in addition to, of course, uh, you know, addressing the target or, or attacking the target. 
So yeah, just depending on, you know, depending on whatever, you know, whatever kind of targets we were trying to, uh, trying to engage, you know, would determine on what sort of rounds I would, I would necessarily request to engage them with. We had a laser range finder, uh, and it was a handheld laser range finder. And what you would do is, you know, you would laser the target, you know, obviously laser bounces back and gives you a distance uh, to the target, you know, within an, I think within a meter of, of accuracy. So you, you know, because in the desert, it's very difficult to tell how far things are away because it's so flat. I mean, literally over a, you know, a two mile area, you might, you know, might only have an elevation increase of five meters or something like that. So, you know, things seem as though they're farther away. So that, you know, laser rangefinder came in, you know, and, and, <laughs> you know, it came in really handy. Yeah, we definitely bracket the target. Um, you know, you get your initial impact, uh, you know, and, and optimally, you know, make your adjustment and fire for effect off of that. And, you know, depending on what the situation was and what the targets were that we were engaging, you know, would depend on how quickly we would engage, um, you know, whether or not we would try and bracket the target or not. And, uh, you know, optimally, you want to get first round effect. You know, when that first round comes down, if you have effect on target, you know, automatically go into the fire for effect phase. It was rewarding because I guess, um, you know, I was able to be a part of something, you know, I was able to be a part of a historical event. Um, and even though that event was, uh, you know, it was pretty tenuous and, uh, and a little and downright scary sometimes, um, you know, very proud of, of what I did and was able to do. And, and I guess the, uh, you know, serving my country. That was Staff Sergeant Brian Keith. Thanks for listening to Warriors in Their Own Words. If you have any feedback, please email the team at kharbaugh at evergreenpodcast.com. We're always looking to improve the show. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to rate and review. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.